missionary service can be compared to a refiner's fire where impurities are burned out of precious metals. Uh, similar effect happens to your soul, and I'm not just talking about your, your inclination to do sin because you spend so much time close to the Spirit that that goes away, but you know, you, you shed ignorance, you shed sloth, you gain a real zeal for sharing with others what has brought you so much joy. Mark chapter 5 verse 19, Christ tells a man, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. I wasn't going home yet, but the reality of the timeline it was starting to settle in now that it was 2005 and I, I would be going home that year. I wanted to make sure that the next nine months of my mission were, were just as good and better than the 15 leading up to then. This is Welcome to the Faro, episode 16, The Year I Go Home. There isn't too much more to say about Albacete that I haven't already said. Not a whole lot happened in January of note. Um, January for me has always been a slow, cold month when you're waiting for the worst of the winter to freeze out and get behind you. I swear the two longest months of the year are January and September. <laughs> September because really the summer's over, but the good celebratory months haven't kicked off yet. But we still spent the next couple of, of weeks, you know, working, trying to find new people, paying visits to Rocio, paying visits to Juan Jose, and uh, might have seen Randy out in the wild once or twice at the grocery store, but he didn't even say anything. Good. Good riddance. Um, but eventually, the transfer call came to Alcoy interestingly enough um, you know as that uh, that transfer wound down that call came in and they told us what the changes were going to be they say yeah you're going to Alcoy with Elder Jones and I, I kind of laughed because I instantly thought like wow I had somehow gotten it in my head that I wasn't going to get transferred here because it was in the same uh, district <laughs> silly me the second thing that came to mind after that happened was something from the zone conference almost a year before in January uh, prior to the meeting with Elder Hillam we had talked about breaking mindsets and trying not to go into an area with a preconceived notion about anything um, one of the Ayudante said you know it's it's kind of a I don't remember his exact wording but you know a, a mission expectation or whatever here in, in Spain, Barcelona, that the two hardest areas we have are Albacete and Alcoy, that people just go there to, to goof off, which kind of had been the long-standing tradition. And I was grateful to be a part of turning that around. Um, I wouldn't be so arrogant as to say that I was the linchpin or the hinge or anything. You know, it, it wasn't like Lystrip and Evenhouse had refused to do any work before I got there. You know, Lystrip finished up his mission there. 
you know, he and Evenhouse were good, obedient elders, and they studied hard and, and all of that. And, you know, Evenhouse kind of helped me to sharpen up my, my blades as I was getting ready to train. And then, you know, I tried to give Elder Rothy a good foundation. Um, I feel like I was a good trainer. I was not a perfect trainer. And uh, I'm grateful that I was replaced with, like I said last week, an elder who was even more rigid than I was. The missionary coming in to replace me was named Elder Ortiz. Uh, he was Ecuadorian, but uh, like a lot of South American missionaries that were serving in Spain, he had you know, moved to Spain at a young age and had you know, citizenship and everything. So um, I don't know if you classify that as, as dual citizenship or whatever. You know, he, was, he was Ecuadorian by, by birth, but I guess technically Spanish by nationality. Anyway, um, this guy had borderline military precision. Uh, he was exactly who you would want in a missionary. Um, after I got the call that he was coming in, he gave me a call and said, you know, hey, what do I need to know? And, um, you know, I told him, oh, you're going to have you know, a, a great ward here. There's, you know, you're going to love the apartment too. And he goes, well, I don't care about the apartment. I care about the area. And I, I felt a little bit affronted. I was like, no, that's not what I'm I'm not saying like, oh, come chill out at this cool apartment, but you know, if he was gonna be taking the reins of, of all the work that we'd gotten done in the last you know, several months together, Elder Rothy and I, including you know, progressing new members and all that stuff, uh, you know, it was good that he came in with that attitude. So he transferred in and I transferred over to Alcoy and uh, I was with Elder Jones. This man, I, I still consider him, you know, outside of my wife, to be my best friend. Uh, he was and remains an incredible influence on me. Before I can tell you too much about Alcoy and the ward and all that stuff, let me tell you about Elder Matthew Jones from Stillwater, Oklahoma. Jones had come in with the same training group as Elder Rothy. So, you know, Westenhofer had trained him is a, is a loose way of putting it. We call the, uh, in the mission, we called the trainer your padre, your father, and your trainee was your hijo, your son. And Jones said once or twice, you know, Elder Westenhofer was my padre, but you were my trainer. Uh, you know, Westenhofer and I were, were cut from, from different materials uh, you know, we acted in, in different ways and we were all necessary you know as the New Testament says the eye cannot say to the foot I have no need of thee um, we were all instruments in a grand toolbox that you know the Lord through President Watson was was using to you know, orchestrate a great work and you know understanding that different missionaries were needed to accomplish different things in a certain order it was was helpful to to knowing you know what your place was in the mission like i said lystrip and evenhouse were the first step in breaking a chain of of uh, bad mission work in albathete um, you know jones and westenhofer were similar um, i guess in a sense i was usually the the second set uh, or the second step in a uh, in a progression towards ever more diligent work in these areas. Because Ortiz, who replaced me in Albacete, was a more diligent and precise missionary than I was. 
and I was grateful to have him in the district because I, you know, I, I realized that, you know, it, it's good for me to be in a learning position, even in a leadership calling. Um, you know, if I start to assume that I know what I'm doing too too well, then that's when I, I trust my own judgment a little too much and I start making mistakes. But my role with Elder Jones and Alcoy was similar to my role with Elder Ebenhouse in Albuquerque. Um, you know, things were moving, and it was our job to keep them moving. Jones, for his part, was an incredibly influential person. We'd already gone on a couple of intercambios, um, you know, when I was in Albuquerque. He and Westenhofer came out a few times, and I would send Westy out with Rothy, and I'd go out with Jones. And he has this great talent for making everybody feel important. Um, his grasp of the, of the language those first few weeks w was was very very low he uh he hadn't taken any in school or anything so he was still kind of going through the rudimentary phases it was his first second language and so i was trying to teach him a whole bunch of tricks and things that i had observed in my own study of the language and, and especially in my time in spain to help him kind of get over some hurdles Usually if you tried to, um, you know, have him say something in Spanish, you could see the wheels start turning in his head as he was trying to figure out how to reduce it in English to match the simplicity of his vocabulary in Spanish and then build from there. Um, you know, so he was, he was working on that. But as we went out on intercambios one night, um, I got the feeling he was having, you know, a rough time with the adjustment, but he was not one to complain at all. Uh, in fact, when he'd been a visa waiter in California, they didn't have enough bikes. And so they hobbled together this Frankenstein bike out of the Mission Garage, and they didn't have a seat on it, and they didn't have money for a seat. So he spent three, four weeks in California riding around standing up the entire time, which just kills your legs and quads. And he you know, refused to complain about it because he, he thought, I just, I understood that a mission was supposed to be hard. A mission was supposed to suck a lot of times. And it just comes with the territory. Uh, but as we were going on those intercambios, we stopped in into a little pasteleria and I bought him a, I don't even remember what it was called. It was some kind of pastry that was glazed over and really crispy and had, you know, nuts and raisins in it, frutos secos. And, you know, I, I had a few extra bucks. I, I bought him one. We went and sat down. I said, here, enjoy these. While you're here in Spain, you got you to gotta jump into the pasteleria because they're, they're just, they're awesome. And so he sat down and he started munching on the thing. He goes, oh, man, this is great. So while we're sitting there talking, he, go, he just turns to me and he goes, teach me something. I said, teach you what? He goes, I don't know, how to do a backflip, anything. Um, and that, that kind of built me up. I was like, oh, cool. You know, he, he wants to learn something from me. I can show him something or other. So I, I remember pulling out my little, uh, you know, pocket notebook. There was a blank page in the back there and I drew a star on it. And on the top three points, well, the top point and the two outside points, I put A, O, and U. And on the bottom two points, I put I and E. What I didn't know at the time was uh, the specific designation of broad vowels and short vowels. And all I had seen was how these vowels influenced the use of certain consonants in the Spanish language. 
and how it was always possible to spell something exactly as you had heard it in Spanish, um, especially if you knew this method. So I drew a line across the, the bottom of the star and said, okay, if it's A, O, or U, this is going to affect a consonant this way. If it's I or E, it's going to affect a consonant that way. And it helped him to get over some of his hurdles with, with learning different aspects of Spanish. And uh, you know, he was always building up my use of the language. Later, when we would go on an intercambio in Alcoy, uh, I had this giant rolled up drawing that I would carry around with me. Uh, this was something that Elder Campbell did in, in Saragossa. He's like, hey, you draw, let's draw this, you can carry it around. Well, I was like, well, I used it as a visual aid, as an attention getter. And I would, I would stop people and I would unroll it and said, hey, you know, have you ever seen this? And, you know, kind of teach a street lesson of the plan of salvation, of pre-mortality, of mortal life, of where we go after. And Jones and I went knocking in, in Alcoy before it was even my area. And somebody opened the door and I whipped out the drawing. I said, hey, you know, can we, can we take a minute to show you this? And we'd teach a few lessons, get a, a brief conversation. I don't remember ever getting inside an apartment, but the first time it happened as we're walking away from this door, he turns to me and he goes, I have never seen that happen. So what are you talking about? He goes, we've never had anybody at, at the door talk to us, talk to Elder Westenhofer and I. We will knock doors all day long, but I've never seen that happen before. And, you know, again, it wasn't, it wasn't hollow flattery. He had a way of recognizing your strengths and emphasizing them to you because he, he knew that it, it helped to build up your confidence. During our time together, he would recommend certain books to me because he, he hadn't read, you know, a thousand books or anything like that, but the books that he found useful, he read over and over again. And he was a big fan of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he would teach certain principles from that book to me. I would go home to read it in, I think, 2009. I would eventually grab a copy and go through it. But he relied heavily on the things that he had learned from that book you know not for the hollow end of influencing people but he he valued people and he he valued their their productivity in a sense you know especially for us missionaries he he valued us becoming the best that we could and i have never heard anybody say a crossword about him now, it's not just that he's able to build people up, but that he does it sincerely. Jones is not a fake person at all. He's, he's very authentic. Um, you know, I wouldn't describe him necessarily as, as an extrovert, a guy who goes out you know, seeking these relationships with people, but it's part of his piety that if it's his calling to serve other people, he, uh, he embraces it wholeheartedly and he does whatever he can to make sure that, that he helps to build them up. And he definitely did that with me. As for Alcoy itself, it was an absolute hidden gem in the mission. Prior to getting sent there, if you had given me the choice to go anywhere in our mission that I wanted, you know, based on pictures and accounts from other missionaries, I would have wanted to go to Andorra up in the Pyrenees. Um, you know that I was a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings films. The Pyrenees looked like that, looked like Middle Earth. And it was, you know, outside of the office, it was the only area in the mission that had a car. And so the elders would frequently 
go up into the mountains. Um, not that it was, you know, a big stretch or anything, and just go walk around up in these these high European hills. And you know, Andorra wasn't wasn't a very populous country, but oh man, I, I would have loved to go there and visit and just and just meet those members and serve. But that was because I didn't know how great Alcoy was. It's a mountain town of about 70,000 people. Um, since it's right between two mountains, you know, gravity takes you to the bottom, and, and so they build bridges between the little ranges of foothills. They call it uh, El Ciutat dels Ponts, the, the city of the bridges. That's in the Valencian language, which is, don't tell them I said this, basically Catalan. They have a couple of different vocabulary words. But, uh, yeah, Alcoy was just gorgeous. Uh, for being a small town, it was also pretty affluent. Um, we had a ward of about 60 members that would attend on the regular, strong families that had been there for generations, and unlike most wards where I had served, the majority of the attending members were Spaniards. You had the Olfina family, the Amaros family, um, the Garcia family, the Bishop of Garcia. He wasn't from Alcoy. He was uh, from, I think, Andalusia, but his wife was Alcoyana, and so you know they lived there. And the you know the ward was strong. They met every week. They had a pianist. Um, that was not common in Spain. You know, people were usually singing the hymns a cappella, and so just just a gem. I, I can't sing its praises enough. It ended up being one of my favorite areas. And hands down, the family that I, I made the closest friends with while I was there was the Story family. Uh, the son, Ruben, he's about 10 years older than I am, more or less. Uh, technically American, uh, their, their family is a, a bit of a mixed bunch. So let me go back a generation and talk about Ruben's dad. Gerardus David Story von Wickscrapper was a Dutch Jew who was born in Amsterdam and survived the Holocaust. The war broke out when he was 12 years old. He saw the Third Reich descend upon his city, upon his hometown. He saw family members of his killed. He saw a Nazi grab his three-year-old cousin by the ankles and slam her headfirst against a brick wall because she was crying that they were taking her dad away. He, he witnessed up close the horrors of war. In his teens, he joined the underground Dutch resistance, doing whatever they could to find food for their families. He saw the Nazis sterilize his mother in what was not the most surgically sound way. He escaped the Nazis one time when they tried to round him up and take him to a concentration camp. He'd been shot. He had to hide in a cesspool from a sewage processing plant. This was a man who knew hardships that I probably never will. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, he was a full-blooded Jew. Uh, his mother was Jewish, so you know, even though his, his father was Dutch, he was considered Jewish. And they, they uh, when they issued the new IDs, they they stamped, you know, derogatory terms on on his identification card, so that any time he had to present it, 
they knew who he was. Um, after the war ended, he traveled Europe, traveled to South America, traveled to North America. It was much easier to gain citizenship in those days, and he did. He married once. Uh, it ended in divorce. He married again. Uh, it ended in divorce. And his third time, he married a, a Spanish woman in a small town in Alcoy. And of that marriage came Reuben. Um, because Gerardus had American citizenship, um, you know, so did Reuben. Uh, I think they spent time in Spain, spent time in America, spent time back in Spain. During his time in Spain, um, the dictatorship of Francisco Franco ended, the country gained religious liberty, missionaries came in, and through, through years and through effort and through study and through challenging and everything, eventually the Story family joined the church. I, I can't imagine the incredible faith that it would take for a Jewish Holocaust survivor who then became, I don't think agnostic is the right word, but hostile in his understanding of God, would then gain a testimony, get baptized, and join the church. Um, by the time that I met Gerardo's story, he had been suffering from Alzheimer's for a couple of years. He had moments of lucidity. There were times when he would remember us. But this was a man of, of great accomplishment who had lived a fantastically hard life and had come out of it with, with a, a wonderful family that loved him. And it was, it was a pleasure to be in their home. Reuben had served a mission to Ireland and then come back to Alcoy and you know, married his sweetheart, Esther. They had, still have two daughters. Uh, their youngest was just a baby when we were there. And so we, we frequently visited with them. Um, you know, Reuben spoke fluent American English. He was a jokester, uh, great sense of humor. Prior to me getting called to Alcoy, we had taken a P-Day there and went and played Risk at Reuben's house. He loved playing Risk. That was, that was my first time. I got my head handed to me, but it was, it was a ton of fun. I, I became very fast friends with pretty much everybody there. Uh, Marie Moret was uh, an elderly single sister that we would visit frequently, uh, along with you know, when, her, when her boyfriend was there. He was, he was a character. Um, the Horda family, the, I can't remember the hermana's name. It wasn't Horda because of how last names work, but I, in my head I always remembered it that way. Cristina Horda, the daughter, was a few years older than we were, and um, just just wonderful people. The Ponsoda family, very strong family in the gospel. Uh, the elder daughter, Vivina, served a mission to Temple Square. She was there at Temple Square when um, when my wife Shara and I were, were living in, you know, not Salt Lake, but you know, south of Salt Lake. We were living in Utah and we had gotten engaged. And so when I heard that Vivina was serving at Temple Square, we stopped by one day and we're, hey, is there a Hermana Ponsoda around here? And and uh, checked in on her, see how she was doing. So it was just, just incredible. Um, the Vaca family—they were from Ecuador. Um, you know, Mario Vaca was uh, a widower. He had two teenage kids, a, a daughter and a son. We'd visit them a lot. They, uh, you know, we, we became very close friends with them. Just 
I can't think of, of anybody in that area that I had a difficult time with. They, they were just such a beautiful, close-knit community. And uh, it, was, it was such a pleasure to serve there. There was still plenty of work to be done in Alcoy. Not just the typical area book stuff where we mapped out the city and, and uh, you know, the little neighboring pueblecitos that, that were under our stewardship. There was a considerable list of inactive members in an adjacent town called Ebi. And Jones and I would take a trip out there, usually once a week, just because it was a bit of a long bus ride. And if we missed our bus, it would be three hours to the next bus. Travel was pretty infrequent between Alcoy and other places just because of its remoteness. Um, in fact, whenever we were going to Alcoy from Valencia, I want to say that we had to hop a bus from one place or the other and I, now I'm trying to remember we took an electric train to a certain point and then we had to transfer in another city and take a diesel powered train up the mountain uh, it was it was a long slow crawl to get there and with EB it was it was similar but once a week we would go out to EB and we would visit a couple of these inactive member families that were South American. Um, if I understand right, it was because you know, EB was a very, very cheap place to live. And you know, unlike big cities, it didn't get a whole lot of scrutiny from immigration enforcement. So it was easier for these guys to find you know, remote work while they were working on you know, getting their citizenship and, and maintaining their legality. Um, these were families that were big into uh, traditional Ecuadorian and Peruvian dance styles. Uh, frequently we'd go over to their house and they were watching videotape, uh, video, videotaped rehearsals of theirs where they were checking their footwork and stuff and it, it didn't seem like a big deal to me but even the, uh, the hardcore punk rocker kids were getting into it and saying okay we need to do this better, we need to do that better. It was almost like stepping into a South American version of, of Step Up where you know, the, the, the family members all have different lives but there's this thing that they are all united on and very passionate about um, I found it to be a beautiful thing I've got a story for you about these families in EB but I will save it for the next episode because February is going to be a pretty full one but needless to say I very quickly fell in love with the area not just for its its natural beauty and the mountains and the trees and and the excellent apartment that we had that was rented to us very affordably by some members. Um, just, just everything. It was going to completely break my heart what happened at the end of February. But that is a story for another week. So tune in next week. And until then, keep the faith.